Welcome to episode 38 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Jordan Powell, student at University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry, Northeastern Regional Representative on the RSA Medical Student Council, and Vice Chair of the RSA Diversity and Inclusion Committee, speaks with Dr. Lisa Marina Walton, President-Elect of AAEM. Today, Ms. Powell and Dr. Marina Walton talk about intersectional diversity in medicine. First, we would like to thank Dr. Marina Walton for joining us today and taking the time out of her very busy schedule to speak with us. Um, My name is Jordan Powell, and I serve as the vice chair on the RSA Diversity and Inclusion Committee. I have the honor of introducing Dr. Marina Walton today for a discussion on intersectional diversity in medicine. As a quick but far from complete background on our guests, Dr. Marina Walton is a professor of emergency medicine at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center, as well as the director of research. Director of Diversity, and Director of HIV and HCV Testing. She serves on the Board of Directors of AAEM and is an NIH Pride Research Scholar, as well as the recipient of multiple national awards for education, research, and scholarship. Her academic interests include HIV, diversity, and healthcare disparities. Thank you, Dr. Marino Walton, and welcome to our program today. We are so fortunate for the opportunity to hear your thoughts and expertise on intersectional diversity in medicine. As a brief introduction, the National Dialogue of Diversity and Inclusion often incorporates the idea of intersectionality. As a quick definition, intersectionality is the interconnectedness of a variety of social categorizations, including, but not limited to, race, class, gender, sexual orientation, ability, and socioeconomic status. To best initially address this in emergency medicine, we can divide it into patient-provider interaction and interprofessional development. To start in touch on intersectionality among providers and patient-provider relationships, we would like to turn this to Dr. Marino at Walton and just ask, just from the surface level, when walking into the ED, what are the environmental factors in the ED, as well as waiting rooms that that are inherently exclusive? So I'd like to start by discussing the issue of class and socioeconomic status, because I think that's really the main issue when you walk into an emergency department. So... A lot of times, healthcare disparities are put down to, to race, and although that is definitely true, and the Institute of Medicine did show 12 or 13 years ago, and the CDC continues to show in their annual reports that people of color have poorer outcomes in every class of disease that is measured, with the exception, interestingly enough, of suicide and drug abuse, where whites tend to prevail. And that's not what most people, when asked, who do you think are the most common drug abusers in the United States? The vast majority of people would not think of whites, but that is a discussion of unconscious bias. It's a whole separate discussion. But when we talk about coming into the emergency department, who is in the waiting room? Individuals of low socioeconomic status are in the waiting room. And those predominantly in the United States tend to be people of color. Because if you have a really serious emergency, you are not in the waiting room, right? You get brought right in, put in a resuscitation bay, or you get a a stroke activation called or a MI activation called. But if you are 
in the waiting room waiting to see a doctor, chances are that you were not able to see a private doctor. So you either don't have a private doctor, or you have a private doctor with limited availability, or you're a clinic patient, or you didn't have the money to call your Uber app and get a ride to your doctor or to get into your car and drive to your doctor. So first we see people who are of lower socioeconomic status in the, in the waiting room. And that I think is the first degree of separation from availability and access to healthcare. So, I mean, it's clear there are multiple limitations to access to healthcare. What are different ways that we can acknowledge and counteract these different environmental exclusivities? Well, the healthcare system is clearly broken in the United States right now. And I certainly don't have a sense of where the fix is going. And I'm not sure that anybody does have a sense of where the fix is going under the current administration. The issues that have been suggested by thinkers in this area are not new. We need to have more primary care providers in the United States. Primary care providers need to be incentivized to locate in areas where the patients are. So you can't take somebody who graduates from medical school and residency and has $200,000 of medical school debt and ask them to set a practice up in a neighborhood where their payer mix is not going to be a mix at all, but it's going to be all Medicaid patients. And yet, these are the neighborhoods and these are the patients that don't have primary care. If they don't have primary care, we know that they have nowhere to go when they have a cold, the flu, a vaginal discharge. They end up coming to the emergency department. We also know that they're not getting preventive care, and then that contributes to poorer outcomes for people of color, for sexual minorities, for people of lower socioeconomic status. So the fix is not a new proposal. Equal access to health care, federal insurance, subsidizing physicians who go to work in underserved areas, decreasing the cost of medical education, having more underrepresented minorities in medical school because we know that underrepresented minorities are the ones who choose to go to work where the need is greatest. All of these things are not new ideas. They're not new proposals. They've just never been able to be implemented by our government. Very true. Now to shift, you know, more so from the environmental factors, more so to the patient-provider relationship. How can providers recognize and properly address their transgression towards others, whether it be their colleagues or um, their patients that they're, that they're seeing in the ED? So I, I wanted to focus first on the word that you use, transgressions. And I think that that word can sometimes also in itself create barriers. It's very hard when you are the victim of a microaggression or, or unconscious bias or overt racism to be kind to the perpetrator of that violence. And it really is violence, even if it's not physical. And, and we know that it affects the way that we see ourselves as physicians, nurses, medical students. We are the victims of those microaggressions. And it's difficult then to not regard them as transgressions. But in some ways, regarding them as transgressions is a barrier to healing that process. Because most of the time, those individuals who perpetrate those transgressions or microaggressions, most of the time, they are unaware of what they're doing. I'm not saying that there aren't people who are overt racists. There are. 
And I'm not saying that there are not people who are mean, because there are. But most of the people, I think, are well-meaning and just really aren't aware of what they're doing and what they're saying and the message that they're giving. So how do you fix that? You fix that by raising the level of awareness. So we as underrepresented minorities in medicine have to be willing to take that step and go to someone privately, not publicly shame people, could go to someone privately and say, you know, you said this and that, that is stereotyping. That is a microaggression. That is undermining to other people. So one of the things that commonly happens is we make rounds and there's always this us, them, right? A lot of residents, a lot of attendings will say they always do this or they are like that. Who are they? We're putting up an us and them barrier, right? We're all people and we all need to be treated with respect, patients and providers, physicians alike. So one of the ways is to raise awareness in a private way by assuming that people didn't mean to commit this transgression or this microaggression, and that once we raise their awareness about it, they'll be less likely to do it again. The problem is that often people who perpetrate transgressions or microaggressions don't like to be told about it because people don't always see themselves as they are. Instead, they see themselves as their best self, as they want to be. And so I had an interesting conversation with a student recently where I gave a presentation about diversity and inclusion and cultural competency. And the student came up to me and said to me, you know, you're a full professor. You can go and say what you want to say to other faculty members, and they can't do anything to you. I'm a medical student. If I want to go up and tell a faculty member that they said something pejorative or stereotypical about a black woman or a Puerto Rican man, I can't go say that to them because they're grading me. And so, again, that becomes an issue where there's a, a differential in power between the person who's the victim of the microaggression or the transgression and the person who's perpetrating it. And so I think it behooves us, those of us who are in positions where we are full professors or chairs, to really, really make this part of our agenda in training our faculty, not just medical students and residents, but in training our faculty to be culturally sensitive and creating an environment where people actually want to be told when they make an error so that they can be the best doctor that they possibly can be and the best educator that they possibly can be. And I'm glad that you brought up addressing microaggressions from patients or colleagues. What are some advice that you have for residents, students, even attendings, as far as coping strategies for microaggressions and how best to address them? I notice first you mentioned just kind of tackling them head on and, you know, addressing someone in a private manner. Are there any other coping skills or advice that you can give to our listeners? So I think that microaggressions are, first of all, we don't often even recognize them when we're the victims of them. I look back at my own training, both in medical school, surgery residency, not so much emergency medicine residency, I have to say, which is a good thing. Yes. But I look back at some of the things that were said to me, and I realize how undermining that 
that is and how undermining that was. And at the time, I didn't even realize that it was undermining because I actually believed it to be true. So that's part of the problem. I think that when we come into medical school, or we come into residency, that, and I'm going to say it because it isn't said often, that I think we've internalized that sense that maybe we really don't belong there. Maybe we really aren't as good as everybody else. Maybe we really aren't as deserving. Because this is a message that we've been getting since the day we were born. This is a cultural message that says you're different, you're a part, you're not a part of the mainstream, you're not entitled to everything that someone in the mainstream is entitled to. So when a microaggression is perpetrated against a person of color or a sexual minority, that individual already feels that they're different, and so they often own that microaggression. Well, yes, maybe I really don't deserve this. Maybe I didn't score quite as high on my MCATs as the average Caucasian student did. Maybe my step score wasn't as high. And we've internalized the way that society measures our worth. And so when those microaggressions are committed, we own them. We take them into ourselves. The first step is what we need to do as people to say that my worth is not my MCAT score. My worth is not my step score. My worth is my commitment to the community, my passion for learning, my passion to be the best doctor that I can possibly be, my willingness to be a doctor to those people who everyone else doesn't want to be a doctor to. So reframing our sense of who we are as a person and what our self-worth is, and then finding mentors who are going to validate and support that rewritten agenda about who I am. And finding mentors is very, very important. Finding people who can support you as you go through the stressful period of medical school and residency training. Finding people who you can go to when you can't tell that professor or that attending who's taking you on rounds and says something about, well, we know that all black men smoke marijuana, or we know that most black people don't have jobs or that most Puerto Rican people or Cubanos don't speak English. When we hear things like that, that we can go to this mentor and say, okay, I'm not necessarily empowered to say anything to this professor or this attending, but you are. And so I want, I want to tell you and I want to share with you what's going on. Because in all honesty, no department should be tolerating that. And every department should want their attending physicians and their teachers to be behaving in a way that shows that we are unbiased, that we are accepting, that we are inclusive, because inclusion is, is where we're all supposed to be going. So I think having a mentor is really, really important. And having collegial relationships with other individuals from similar backgrounds. Thank you for that advice. And I'm sure that our listeners or anyone that's ever fell victim to any microaggressions will find that advice very helpful. To shift to talk about intersectionality among medical professionals and throughout medical education to be complete, how do we encourage diversity, inclusion, and medicine in leadership positions without tokenizing individuals? So that's a really, <laughs> that is a really, really interesting topic. And why, why I find it interesting is because we want to increase the number of underrepresented minorities, women, and sexual minorities in positions of leadership, and yet we want to avoid tokenism, and, but tokenism becomes a part of it. 
I remember going on an interview one time and somebody said they really hoped that I would accept the job and literally said this, I will then get to tick two boxes, women and minority. So the tokenism issue really, really exists. At the same time, when we talk about the merit of the individual, if we're continuing to look at merit through the quote-unquote standard definition, if we're interviewing people for residency positions and we say, for example, the first and most important thing is your, is your step score, and we know that people of color do not perform as well on standardized tests as Caucasians because the tests are actually standardized for them and not for people of color. And so then the issue becomes, am I promoting this person because they are a person of color or am I promoting this person because of their merit? Well, if I'm defining merit according to the mainstream, then the vast majority of people of color are not going to merit based on that definition. So we have to redefine the definition of merit. You know, what is merit? Merit is not just the score that you get. Merit is also the relationship that you have with your patients. So how is patient satisfaction with this person? How does this person get along with nurses, for example? How is this, is this person doing with teaching? We have to redefine what merit is. And I think that's going to be key to seeing the advancement of people of color to positions of power in medicine and positions of authority in medicine. I think we're starting to see that now because we're becoming more conscious of issues of wellness. And so communication is being regarded as meritous. And we are better at communicating, for sure. We are better at looking at the whole patient. Less likely to hand someone a prescription and say, go fill this. More likely to say, do you have a way to pay for this prescription? So as we redefine merit, I think that people of color will continue to rise to the top. Yes, I do agree. Well, Dr. Marina Walton, we are so humbled and thankful that you took the time to speak with us today and to provide your expertise in the matter of intersectional diversity in emergency medicine. I hope our listeners have gained insight on patient-provider interaction and interprofessional development and its effects on intersectional diversity in emergency medicine. Again, thank you so much, and we appreciate you for taking the time to speak with us today. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity, and I'm honored that RSA is so committed to diversity. Thank you for that. Yes, thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.